Acts chapter 21, page 1102, verse 17. So we continue our week-by-week study through the book of Acts. We're almost wrapping it up here. And we've been looking at Paul on his missionary journeys throughout the Greco-Roman world, and now he's coming back to the mother church in Jerusalem where hardship and difficulty await him. Today we're going to look at one of those hardships in particular, a hardship that we face as Christians as well. Acts chapter 21, we'll start in verse 17 here in a moment. Some of you know that uh, earlier this spring I had the privilege of traveling to Dubai again in the United Arab Emirates uh, to do some ministry there. And uh, this time I took my 17-year-old daughter along, or 18-year-old daughter along with me and we were uh, going there, at, you know, sort of like, hey, final father, dad, daughter trip to the Middle East that everyone does, right? And so anyway, we, it was really fun. So I did some ministry there, and uh, we did some sightseeing too. We went to the largest mall in the world, which is right underneath the largest building in the world in Dubai. And um, some of you heard this story when I did the presentation. But anyway, we were, we were trying to get to the mall, and we had to hail a taxi, and we were waiting for taxis and hailing taxis, and no taxis were coming, and, and then this white SUV pulled up, and there's a Pakistani guy driving it, and he said, so, you know, he goes, where are you going? And I said, I'm trying to get to the mall. And he said, well, I can take you. And I said, well, sure, why not? So we jumped in, the, you know, the stranger's car, because, you know, that's what you do, I guess. I mean, I sized him up, all right, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I think I can handle this if this gets out of control. But anyway... He was a super nice guy, really friendly. We talked the whole way, and he was just talking about life in Dubai, and you know, it was really interesting. And then he dropped us off at the mall, and as we were getting out of his SUV, he, he said something and reached his, his hand over, and sort of was in front of me, and I kind of looked at it, and so I grabbed his hand, and I was like, hey, well, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. And I got out, and, and my daughter got out, and we, and we went in, and, and my daughter was like, Dad, Dad, I think he wanted money. And I was like, What? Like, ah, oh. I'm like, blah, blah, blah. I go, first of all, well, first of all, I told her, don't ever get in cars with strangers. <laughs> don't do that. I mean, I can do it, but you should never do that. Then I said, but second of all, I go, I didn't know he wanted money. There was, you know, didn't have a little taxi thing, and he didn't say that up front. That wasn't the agreement. I thought he was just being a nice guy. And I was like, are you sure? So we asked some of our friends later, and sure enough, there's kind of like an illegal taxi business in Dubai where... People, and usually they're known because they drive white cars, and that's sort of the, the sign that they're one of these. So he was asking for a little, for a few Durhams, and I, I totally missed it. But, you know, it was a total misunderstanding, right? It really was. I didn't understand him. I didn't understand where he was coming from. I didn't get the system. And I fear perhaps now he misunderstood me. I mean, I, I hope he doesn't drive away thinking Americans, always cheating you and stiffing you, you know, and maybe I've created a misunderstanding, perhaps I've created kind of an international incident that I didn't even know about, but if you're going to do cross-cultural living and cross-cultural traveling and cross-cultural working, prepare for many misunderstandings. They are going to come. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of them because we all assume that this is how the world works and then you go other places and you find out that they all assume the world works in a very different way. And assumptions, of course, are so dangerous. But it's not only true when we function cross-culturally. I think it's also true when we live overtly and intentionally as followers of Jesus Christ that there will be many misunderstandings. It, when you decide to be a light for Jesus in your school, where you go, when you, when you decide to live for Christ in the, the workplace, 
when you decide to be overt about your faith in some way or another and not hide it, people are going to misunderstand that. And and if you decide that you want to be a, a Christian who's trying to share the gospel with others, just prepare to be misunderstood. It's the culture of heaven and the culture of the kingdom of God interacting with the culture of this world, and there's bound to be misunderstandings, misrepresentations of various sorts. Here we are with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 21. As I said earlier, he's finishing up his third missionary journey, and he's making a trip back to the mother church in Jerusalem. And as he's been heading back to Jerusalem, we saw last week, the Holy Spirit has been warning him that when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to have difficulties. There's hardships and even prison awaiting you, Paul. And he gets to Jerusalem, and sure enough, that's what happens. Hardships come upon him. But what's interesting is the first hardship he faces as he gets back to Jerusalem is that he has been profoundly misunderstood, misrepresented. And and that's a difficult thing. I hate being misunderstood and misrepresented. I don't know if you feel that way too. It, it, It kind of gets at us. We want to set the record straight about ourselves and defend ourselves. And so here, Paul is misunderstood both inside the church and outside the church in Jerusalem. And yet his response to both misunderstandings, both inside the church and outside the church, is exactly the same. He responds with the grace and the truth of the gospel. It's a gospel response to a misunderstanding. Look at the story. First, look at how he was misunderstood inside the church. It says in verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul gets there and he starts telling the the Jerusalem church, look at God's done, God's done this and that, it's been really amazing. And and he probably tells them about all those missionary journeys that we've been studying about for the last couple months earlier in the book of Acts. And he tells all the amazing stories and the imprisonments and how people have come to faith. It's, it's an incredible. It's, it's a mega missionary report of all the things God has been doing among people in the Greco-Roman world. So, so far, so good. But then comes the misunderstanding, verse 20. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear you have come, so do what we tell you. So there's a misunderstanding. Paul has come back from his his arduous decade of missionary work among the Gentiles, and, and he's been telling the Gentiles about Jesus, and they've been coming to faith, but now something has happened, that the Jews who are living in Jerusalem, who are Christians, have come to believe through whatever means that Paul is not just evangelizing Gentiles, but he's also telling Jewish people in the Greco-Roman world, hey, to follow Jesus, you have to repudiate your Jewish cultural heritage. You have to repudiate the law of Moses. And so, you know, stop circumcising your, your boys, stop eating kosher, you know, don't observe the holy days. And, and so, so it's, it's this, this idea that Paul is doing more than just evangelizing Gentiles, but he's kind of de-Jewifying the Jews. 
that he evangelizes as well. And, and so, you know, and Paul's like, what? You know, Paul never preached that. And the church had agreed that Gentiles who came to faith in Jesus didn't have to become Jewish, they just had to believe in Jesus. But now all of Paul's hard work of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is being misconstrued as a kind of anti-Jewish culture, anti-Jewish heritage message. He's misunderstood. People have got their wires crossed somewhere along the way. So what are they going to do about it? Well, uh, this, is what, um, th- this is what they say. And by the way, just, just to add that, you know, that's, that's a common misunderstanding today, that sometimes to become a Christian you have to get rid of a cultural or ethnic heritage. Uh, I, I think sometimes if, um, you know, if they're friends or neighbors or family who are culturally or, or their heritage is Jewish, th- there are sometimes hurdles for them to talk to Christians about faith. And some of those hurdles are things Christians have done through the centuries. But, but you know, one of the hurdles is that sometimes there's this thought that to become a Christian, a Jewish person has to renounce their Jewish heritage. And that's just not the case. You know, that, that wasn't the case back then, and it's not the case today. You have to have faith in Christ to be saved, but that doesn't mean you have to stop observing the Passover or something like that. And so, so this was the, the issue that was there. And by the way, I think that's one of the really fascinating things about Christianity, is that Christianity has this capacity to adapt itself to the various cultural conventions wherever it's preached and taught. And so it, it, it sort of becomes like the, the people who adopt it. Um, and so Christians in America, it feels like American Christianity for good or for ill in some cases. If you go to Nigeria and the gospel is preached there, it, it, has, it takes on a Nigerian flavor. You know, some world religions, they have a kind of cultural shape to them. Uh, so, so Hinduism, for instance, has the whole caste system, and it reshapes the culture according to the caste system that's a part of Hinduism. Or in Islam, it's, Islam has a lot of cultural laws, and it, and it takes on a very specific cultural form in many cases. But that's one of the cool things about Christianity is that it, it sort of adapts. And, and so as a Christian, we don't have any particular Christian way of dressing. We don't have a particular Christian language that we all speak. We don't have a particular Christian way of doing our hair or, you know, what kind of food we eat. Christianity has that adaptive aspect to it. So here, there's a misunderstanding that the Jewish people must give up their cultural heritage to follow Jesus. So what's the solution? How are they going to fix this misunderstanding inside the church? Well, here it is, verse 23. They say to Paul, there are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there's no truth to these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So here's the solution. Go to the temple and do a really Jewish activity. Follow the, the, the vow tradition. So maybe there's some guys in the church who had taken a, perhaps a Nazarite vow, and, and the time of their vow is ending, and so they have to go through a purification period. And they say, Paul, you need to go with them. You need to sponsor them. You need to pay for them. You need to participate in the purification with them. And so that way, when anyone starts saying, Paul is rejecting Jewish heritage, you can say, no, no, look, we saw him in the temple. He did this, this, and this. And if he was rejecting Jewish heritage, he wouldn't have done that vow purification ceremony thing, right? So that's the plan. So what do you think of that plan? I suppose it makes sense, but 
I'm going to be really honest, and maybe this is just my sinful reaction to this, but I think I'd be a little bit bothered when they told me to do that. I'd be like, what? Why do I have to do all that and pony up for these guys' purification rites when I didn't do anything? People are lying about me. They're saying things about me that aren't true. You know, and, and hey, you elders in Jerusalem, why don't you go straighten out your church and tell the truth to them about who I am? I haven't done anything wrong, you know? And besides, what have I been doing for the last 10 years? Oh, I don't know, taking the gospel to the known world, you know? I've been in prison, I've been beaten, I've been, you know, tired and hardworking, all to spread the gospel while you guys sit here and worry about your cultural heritage. And then I come back and what thanks do I get? Everybody's questioning me and my faith. You know, you could just... Maybe that's just me. I could get all worked up. Sometimes when I hear things like that and people question me or whatever, I, you know, I have this defensive reaction that sometimes comes out. And, and I, can, I can become stubborn. Anyone else here ever get stubborn? It just, like when you feel like you're being like manipulated into something like that, like you need to go and you need to do this in the temple to make everyone think that whatever, I, you know, my, that stubborn part of me <laughs> it comes right out. And I'm just like... Ugh. I don't want you can't make me do that. It just I dig my heels in. That's our natural reaction. We don't like this kind of thing. But that's not how Paul responded. Verse 26. The next day, Paul took them in and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Paul just said, "Okay, I'll do it. And he did it. You're like, wow. Paul responded to misunderstanding and misrepresentation with a gospel-shaped response. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the message that Jesus died for our sins. He gave up his rights. He left heaven's throne and died on the cross for us so that we could be saved and he rose again. And, and what that means is that that if we're going to be gospel-shaped people, we not only tell people about Jesus, but we model that same pattern of being humbly willing to give up our rights and to serve others, and even to do things that we don't want to do or wouldn't naturally do. That, that's that's gospel-shaped living. I think sometimes we think of the gospel as just the message that you believe in in order to become a Christian, and it's true. But the gospel is also, it's the whole modality and shape of the Christian life. The gospel isn't just the ABCs of how you become a Christian. It's the A to Z of the entire Christian existence so so that it it informs even the way I react to situations like that where where I say, okay. I mean, Paul taught on this. This is Paul's message in 1 Corinthians. Put a bookmark here, if you would, in Acts 21 and turn over a few more pages to 1 Corinthians 9 on page 1134. Paul spends, if you guys remember this from last year, those of you who studied 1 Corinthians last year, maybe you'll remember, Paul spends three whole chapters of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, on really one message, which is be willing to give up your rights for the good of other Christians and for the good of the gospel. That a gospel-shaped person gives up their rights to build up others and to, to build up the church and to, uh, to surrender themselves to the good of others. Look at verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 19 says, Paul says, Though I am free, 
and I belong to no man, I have no obligation to do this temple ritual thing, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. That's the law of Moses. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not under the law, not having the law, that's the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, so to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. For Paul, the gospel wasn't just a a little message that he shared or a little spiel that he gave. The gospel was his lens through which he viewed all of life. And he saw that he preached a Savior who gave up his rights to save us. And so for Paul, this was natural as a gospel-shaped person to give up his rights and say, okay, well, if this will help the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem know that I'm not, you know, out there preaching against Judaism, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll go to the temple and do that. How about you? Are, you? are you currently got your heels dug in somewhere? Are you currently in conflict? Are you currently feeling pushed in some way? Look at Paul's response. What about responding in a gospel-shaped way and being willing to lay down your rights and say, okay, fine. I know this, this helps in so many different relationships and conflict that, that we have in our relationships that, you know, for Jennifer and me in our marriage, you know, sometimes we disagree about things and we, we get at loggerheads and, and in, the, in the heat of the moment you say things you regret and then there's some, you know, then you kind of step away from it and, and then there's that, that quiet period where it's like, well, you know, she better apologize first, right? And she's thinking, he better apologize first and, you know, neither of you wants to break the ice and there's just that kind of awkward space that you've created together so wonderfully. And, and so many times, you know, I... I, I just, as we've wrestled through those, those moments in our own marriage, I, I, I say, you know, I, I'm the leader of the house, and the head of the house is the husband, and that means I have to lead the way by humbling myself. I have to lead the way by surrendering my rights and my desire to be apologized to first, and I need to start the process. And so that's, that's part of leadership, is to be a humble servant. And so I'll go and I'll say, okay, look, you know, you were right about that, that, and that, and that, and that, and that. And uh, I was wrong about this, and I'm really sorry. And then that starts the conversation again. And that's hard to do because, you know, we'd rather be vindicated when we're misrepresented or misunderstood. But this is how we, how we work through things. The gospel gives us resources for submitting to one another and honoring others above ourselves because that's the heart of our message is that Christ did that for us. So that's what Paul does. He goes to the temple. And then a week later, the purification time comes, verse 27, and things go from bad to worse. Verse 27, Paul experiences not only misunderstanding and misrepresentation inside the church, but also misrepresentation and misunderstanding outside the church. It says in verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people 
and against our law and this place, in other words, the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. So lots of assumptions, lots of, you know, making leaps of logic. They see Paul with Trophimus, and they assume if Paul's in the temple, he must have brought Trophimus in the temple. And, you know, in the Jewish temple, one of the laws is that Gentiles were not allowed. If, if you were to go into the ancient temple in Jerusalem, you would reach a point as you went through courtyard after courtyard where there would be a big sign warning you that if you're a Gentile, you go past this point, you are subject to immediate execution. You could just be summarily killed past that point, no questions asked. It was deadly serious. And so when they say, you brought a, a Gentile, an Ephesian, into this temple, this is serious charge. And of course, Paul hadn't done any of those things. Paul was being misrepresented. He's being misunderstood. Poor Paul. He's just trying to get the church to not be misunderstanding him by doing this whole ritual thing. And in the process, he steps into another bear trap. I mean, just the poor guy. But hey, the Holy Spirit warned him. So, you know, it's going to be suffering and tough stuff in Jerusalem. And sure enough, there it is. And so now, verse 30, the whole city was aroused, the people were running from all directions, seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, immediately the gates were shut, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops, that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar, and he at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, Then he asked who he was and what he had done, and some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be be taken to the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers, and the crowd that followed him kept shouting, away with him. Yet another riot in the book of Acts caused by the gospel. And then get this, verse 37, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? And he must have asked him in Greek, because the commander says, do you speak Greek? He replied, then get this, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Like poor Paul, he just can't catch a break, you know? I'm not the Egyptian terrorist. And we know actually from church history, or rather from ancient history, there's writings about this, this guy. There was a terrorist guy who led a revolt, and then they went out in the desert, and all of his followers got slaughtered, and he ran away and escaped. But now it's like, are you back? Are, are you the Egyptian terrorist? Paul's like, just imagine Paul like, you know. I'm not telling Jews to stop being Jewish. I didn't bring any Gentiles into the temple. I'm not an Egyptian terrorist. Does anybody understand me? He feels so misunderstood. Paul answered, I'm a, verse 39, I'm a Jew. From, not from Egypt, I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. City, please let me speak to the people. And so this is, this is what we need to just brace ourselves for as Christians, that if we're going to live for Jesus in this world, overtly and intentionally, prepare to be misunderstood. If you're a, a, a kid in school or high school uh, or elementary school and you're trying to be a light for Jesus in your school, 
Like, don't be surprised if other kids or other teachers don't understand that or misunderstand that. Or if you're, you know, if, if you're trying to be a, a witness for Christ at work and you, you, know, you bring your Bible to work, you put it on your desk, you read it in your spare time, or, or maybe you know, people ask you, what did you do this weekend? And you say, well, I was in church and blah, 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 blah. Or, or if you, uh, you know, talk about your faith with people over lunch, whatever. If, if, you're being, if you're living for Christ sort of overtly in the world, don't be surprised if you're misunderstood. The misunderstanding can take lots of forms. Sometimes people, they, they just don't understand the Christian faith or they have stereotypes. I remember once when I was uh, in seminary and I was doing some chaplaincy work up on the North Shore at Beverly Hospital and I was in a rehab unit and I walked into a room to visit a couple ladies as the you know, kind of chaplain on duty and um, I introduced myself and, and one of the ladies said, you know, well, what religion are you? I said, well, I'm I'm Christian. And she said, no, 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 what, what type of Christian are you? And I said, well, I'm, I mean, I go to a Baptist church. She goes, Baptist? And she's totally serious. She goes, aren't you the ones who handle the rattlesnakes in your worship services? <laughs> to- totally serious. And I was like, no. I'm like, th- we do that on Wednesday night. We don't do that. <laughs> Why would we do that on Sunday morning? Are you crazy? You know? There's weird misunderstandings. People have misunderstandings about, about the faith. It's normal. Sometimes we get that from our families. You come to faith in Jesus. You start following Jesus. All of a sudden you want to be in a church. All of a sudden you want to read your Bible. And your family thinks you joined a cult. They say that. Are you in a cult? Like, no, I'm not in a cult. Well, look, we, I mean, we, we're Christians, but we don't really go to church. I mean, why are you all, what happened to you? Are you being brainwashed? Are you giving them money? What, what, are you, what are they doing to you there? What are they telling you? Right? And, and there's suspicion about that. Or, or maybe you've, you, you know, you, you come like for this sort of a particular Baptist example, but, you know, you, you get baptized, but you were baptized as an infant, and so your family's like, wait a minute, we already baptized you as a baby. Why are you getting baptized again? Are, are you saying we're not good enough? Are you repudiating us? What, what are you saying? And people get hurt, and they get offended, and, and they have misunderstandings. People may... may Slap a title on you like a bigot or a hater or an intolerant person, even though you're like, I, I don't hate anybody. I, I think I'm open-minded. I'm not telling anyone to do anything. I'm just telling you what I believe. And yet those misunderstandings are there and those labels. It's really hard. It's really frustrating. I remember when we uh, were uh, in the process of getting permits to build, to build this new facility, and we were in front of the town, and it was interesting just to go through the town <laughs> permitting process it was an education in civics and things, but um, in some of those meetings, there would be opponents, and sometimes those opponents would stand up and misrepresent, and they would say things like, you know, they'd say, listen, this, they're going to build this building, and they're, and they're planning a school, and they're going to have a conference center, and there's going to be buses there every weekend, and those kind of things were said, and, you know, the people from the church who were in the, in the audience were like, I didn't know we were building a school, like... Is that a plan that I didn't hear about? They're like, Jeremy, are we building a school? I'm like, I didn't know about a school. Are we building a conference center? I don't know about that. You know, and so that's really frustrating when people just say things or write things in blogs or newspaper articles. And you just want to set the record straight. You know, you want to defend yourself. But here's Paul. Again, his response is the gospel. He responds to misunderstandings inside the church 
with a gospel-shaped grace that allows him to put his rights aside just to do what's good for the good of the body. And outside the church, Paul again responds with the gospel. In this case, he responds by preaching the gospel. You know, he says, verse 39, please let me speak to them. Paul's probably the only guy who, when he's being about torn limb from limb by an angry mob, thinks, hey, look, there's a group of people here I can preach to. You know? He's probably the only guy who thinks that way. These guys, they're here with pitchforks and you know, torches because they, they want to be done away with Paul. And all Paul can say is, oh, a crowd. How can I tell them about Jesus? So he says to the guy, let me speak to them. I want to speak to this crowd. But again, that's a gospel-shaped person who's not focused on their rights or their privileges or, or what they want. Paul was not an infantile, consumeristic Christian. He, he had a heart for people to come to know Jesus. He didn't care about his own life. It was about others. And so he says, let me speak. I need to speak. So they let him speak. In verse 40, when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Paul's very clever, brothers and fathers, referring to them as fellow Jews, Listen now to my defense. Verse 2 of chapter 22, when they heard him uh, speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, and then this is you know, his, uh, his defense. He, he lays out his Jewish bona fides. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Gamaliel was one of the top rabbis in that day. It would be like saying, you know, I went to Jewish uh, Harvard and I got a PhD. You know, I'm, I, re- I know my stuff. I know our law. I know the law of Moses. I was zealous. In fact, here's how zealous he was, verse 4. I persecuted the followers of this way, that's what they called Christianity, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these peoples as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul just wasn't a a faithful Jew or a a, a devoted Jew. I mean, he was like a, a militant extremist. He, was, he is like a, a terrorizer of people. He, he was so hardcore that probably even the faithful, devout people might even be a little disturbed by him. That's how serious he is. So this is not some guy who hates his Jewish heritage. Far from it. But something happened to him. What happened to him? He met Jesus. He says in verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand in Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He's not anti-Jewish either. Verse 13, he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. 
Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, that's Jesus, the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And so in that moment, Paul was saved Paul went from being blind to seeing, not just physically, literally blind, but he was spiritually blind. He he was a devout follower of Judaism to such an extreme and militant end. He thought he was so committed. He thought he was so religious. And then he came to realize he had misunderstood everything when he had encountered Jesus Christ. I think Paul's story is the story of every true Christian Though we, obviously, Paul's story is unique in many ways. He was an apostle. He actually saw Jesus. He went blind, you know, all that stuff. So there's a lot of ways in which Paul's story is super unique and amazing. But in other ways, it's the story of every Christian. Every Christian, before we were Christians, thought we had it all straight. We had it worked out. We thought we knew what life was about. And we came to a place of realizing we've been wrong about God. We've been wrong about Jesus and, and then we met Jesus, and he forgave us. You know, he's washed our sins away. We've called on the name of Jesus, and he's forgiven us, and, and now we know Jesus, and we can't go back once you've met him, once you know him. People say, you know, well, you've changed. What, what happened to you? you go into that, you're serious about going to church now, and you read your Bible. What, what, what got into you? And you say, well, I, I met Jesus. No, really, really, what really, what really happened to you? <laughs> you know, I, I met Jesus. Oh, yeah, you came to Jesus. No, no, like, like did you have a crisis? Did you, did you, you know, go in for some therapy or something? Are you reading a different book? You know, is it a workout program? Like, what's different about you? And it's like, I've met Christ. He's alive. He's forgiven me. I'm following him. And people don't understand that. I mean, you can't really under, you can understand it, like you can get the concept, but like until you meet Jesus, you can't understand it. But when you meet Jesus, then you're like, wow, I can't go back. He's the righteous one who saves sinners who call on his name. And it changes your life. And people don't always understand that. They misunderstand it. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe you're, you're here investigating or here with a friend And I guess that that would be a word of challenge and encouragement to you is I would just encourage you and ask you, are you misunderstanding what Christianity is all about? Maybe you think you have it figured out, right? Perhaps you grew up in some kind of Christian background. You grew up going to some kind of church. uh, And over the years growing up, you know, you realize like this, like this doesn't really have anything to do with real life. I'm not sure what this has to do with, with my life today. Maybe as you got involved in the church, you, you felt the disconnect between real life and religion. Maybe as you got involved in the church, you saw hypocrisy by leaders. And you said, I got this all figured out. And you, you put it on the shelf and you said, you know, that's not for me. Fine. Maybe that works for some people. I'm not sure why, but whatever. It's not my thing. I'm going to do my thing. But what if, what if, your rejection of Christianity is because you've misunderstood it completely? What if you're reacting against ritualism and hypocrisy and worldly things, but you've missed the whole heart of it, which is Jesus himself, you know? 
Like I would, I would hate for anybody here this morning to reject Christianity because you misunderstood what it was really about. Like I, I would hate for you to miss Jesus because of some other things that confuse the picture. This is real Christianity is to put your faith in Christ and to know him and to have your sins forgiven and to walk with the risen, living Jesus. Christianity is a living relationship with the living Christ. And it's life-changing. It's amazing. And Oh, it would just break my heart if, if, you, if you push that aside because of misunderstandings. I have a pastor friend. Uh, he and I went to a, a pastor's retreat down in Louisville, Kentucky about three weeks ago. And yeah, he's a pastor of a church in Attleboro. So we were flying back, and great guy. We were uh, sitting on this plane. It was one of those, like, two-by-two two planes. And he and I were both in the aisle, and we had people sitting next to us. And uh, the, he had a woman sitting next to him, and she was super chatty and super friendly, and he's a really friendly guy. And so they were like, the whole time. And, and I was sitting there being an introvert, sitting next to an introvert. So we were, like, reading our books and sleeping. But they were talking over there, and... And eventually, you know, I'm kind of eavesdropping, and they start talking to the end of the flight about, you know, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, that's interesting. And so he starts just talking about the faith and talking about the conference we're at. And, and as I'm listening, as now, now I'm, you know, I'm pretending to read, but now I'm really listening to this conversation. And I hear her reactions, and I just hear the, the wall going up. You know, the shields are going up, and her, her answers, she's not engaging him, and he's trying to ask questions, and she does not want to talk about any of this. And, you know, oh, that's fine. Okay, that's good. That's great. <laughs> and she's, you know, but doesn't, doesn't engage at all, and he's, he's trying to just engage her, no, no interest. Um, she's saying things like, well, you know, I, I grew up in, in the church, but, uh, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm an engineer. I figured out that's not for me. I'm glad that's for other people. I'm all set that kind of language. And finally, at the end of the conversation, they're getting up to get off the plane, and he, he, he pulls out of this bag a book that we were given at the retreat. It's called Who is Jesus? It's a great little book just about who Jesus is, really great book to give to people or to read. If you're curious about Jesus, to read it yourself. Great resource. So anyway, he says, listen, he goes, I have a book here. I just happen to have it. I just got it at a retreat. I'd like to give this to you and just encourage you at some point to think about reading it just to learn more about Jesus. And she just said, no, thanks. I don't want it. I'm all set. And we get off the plane, and my friend, who's usually very ebullient and happy-go-lucky guy, he was just really sad, and I had never seen him sad like that. He's like, it just broke my heart to think of somebody not wanting to know about Jesus, to, to just say, no, I'm all set. He just wondered, like, what, what misunderstandings does she have? What, what, what false understandings of a gospel has she labored under? Oh, just to break your heart, to see the seed scattered on the soil and to see the devil take it away without it ever taking root. Oh, I just pray that nobody here would have a hard heart, that as the gospel, soil is, as the gospel seed is landing on you now, don't let the devil just snatch it away. Listen, open your heart to the Lord. But even then, these things happen. What happened to my friend on the plane is what happened to Paul because a lot of people there rejected it. You know, Paul continues his story just to finish it up there in verse 17. He says, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. They wouldn't believe that Paul the persecutor became Paul the Christian. 
Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul shouldn't have said. Because in that moment, verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. And so Paul is arrested, as the Holy Spirit said. Do not be surprised, my friends, if when you commit yourself to Christ and you're bold about the gospel, that some people react very negatively. But isn't that what happened to our Lord and Savior? Was he not also misunderstood? He ministered among tax collectors and sinners trying to tell them the way back to God, and people said, look at him, he's a drunk, he's a partier. You know, he's not a man of God, he's a party boy, he's with all the bad people. Jesus did miracles to heal the sick and to go to people who were unclean because they they had leprosy or other conditions, and he healed them, and and, and people said, well, the reason he can heal them It's because he's demon-possessed. He has a dark power within him. That's why. And they misunderstood him. And they called him a blasphemer because he said he was the son of God. And they said that he was going to destroy the temple. He wasn't going to destroy the temple. He was talking about his body. All these misunderstandings. And Jesus is still misunderstood today. People think of him today as just only a good teacher or only a prophet or only a religious leader. Or they think that maybe he's like one deity or one spiritual power among many. But Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the Messiah, the Savior, the only way to be saved because he's the only one who died and rose again for us. Oh, let us not misunderstand Jesus. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are willing to be misunderstood for his name. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Thank you, Jesus, that on the cross you were shamed so that we could be honored. Thank you, Jesus, that you were disowned so that we could be adopted. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you were killed so that we could live, that you were convicted so that we could be acquitted. Thank you that you were set apart and despised so that we could be blessed and received. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to love you more than the world's opinion about us. Help us to care less about what the world thinks and to be all about you. Help us to be willing to bear and join with you in your misunderstanding. And Lord, we pray that there would be some who would hear and see and believe, that the seed would fall in good soil and that some would receive it. We pray that even here today, those who are in this room, including myself, that we would all be people who hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Oh Lord Jesus, speak to us, clear up our misunderstandings, we pray in your name. Amen.